Good evening, everyone. It's 8.25 p.m. on the coast. Sunday. Just popping by to say hello. And things are looking brighter for this country, the United States. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for supporting and tuning into the show. There's something just not even 15 minutes ago. I found out about this uh, podcast called The Number One Observatory Circle. I'm going to try my best here. Might take me a couple of minutes to um to find it. It's on anchor, so I should be able to find it real easy. And let's hear number one. Observe. Observatory Circle. There it is. It pops up on Anchor. And this episode should be the one I wanted to hear about. Okay, it says uh, number one observatory circle. I wanted to hear about uh, Senator or a Vice President-elect, no longer Senator, Kamala Harris. It's episode 40-something. doesn't show which one it is, but he has quite a few. Number 47 is President-elect Biden, 46 is... Cheney from the Republican administration. He was vice president to George W. Bush. Then there's Lieberman's Faith, then Gore, Quell, Dukakis's running mate, Bush, Reagan's almost co-president. Well, there's a uh, a list uh, looks like a dozen or more they have Rockefeller Truman's home Mondale Reagan Bush Dukakis Quill Gore Lieberman Cheney Biden and now let's see what this one says Circle deep dive into the lives of the second most powerful leader in the U.S. Vice President. Despite the fact that Vice Presidents are a heartbeat away from being the President, many have historically held very little power. Why is that changing? Here are their stories. I'm Micah Brickner. The creator of this podcast, I live in the quaint but bustling 
little city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is almost home of one of America's worst presidents, James Buchanan. I hold both an MA and BA from Indiana Wesleyan University, and I work in nonprofit communications, and his name is Micah Brickner, B-R-I-C-K-N-E-R, and his podcast is called Number One Observatory Circle. This is... um, This is new. Let's see if we can get it to play. Barack Obama. This is number 47. Uh, Barack Obama has often been compared to Abraham Lincoln. So was Joe Biden more like Lincoln's first vice president, Hannibal Hamlin or his second, Andrew Johnson. Find out in this special episode of the podcast featuring an interview with Dr. Thomas J. Balsersky, who is an American history professor and the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King, and they tell you how to buy it on Amazon.com. Okay, well, I was looking for Kamala Harris, but this is just as good. He has it in part one and part two. Part one is 30 minutes, 30 seconds. Part two, 23 minutes, 55 seconds. And I have not heard any of his podcasts before, so we'll listen and learn together. If it's um, inappropriate, then it will be stopped and discarded. Thank you for listening. This is Number One Observatory Circle. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of chatting with Dr. Thomas J. Balsersky about Vice President Joe Biden. In this episode, I'm excited to share Dr. Balsersky's insights with you. First, here's some info about him. Dr. Balsersky is an assistant professor of history at Eastern Connecticut State University. He is also the author of the book Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. You can find a link to buy a copy of this book in the show notes. Here's my conversation with Dr. Balsersky. Great. Hi, Tom. Thanks for uh, being with me uh, to talk about the life of Joe Biden. Thank you for having me, Micah. So... You know, obviously, it's it's challenging to be able to talk about a 
vice president from not so uh, not so far back past, really quite recent, who is now in such a national spotlight. But we're going to try to do that today um, and do it a little bit differently by looking at the story of Joe Biden through the lens of the grand narrative of American history, which is a real challenge, uh, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to help us kind of look at some key aspects in his life. So kind of the first area that I'd like to focus our conversation on is how uh, Barack Obama was so often compared to Abraham Lincoln, uh, obviously being from Illinois, but also kind of the groundbreaking reality that he was bringing a lot of similar parallels. So this might be an unfair comparison because you can't really draw Joe Biden directly to you know, one of Abraham Lincoln's vice presidents. But if you had to pick, do you think that Joe Biden was more like Hannibal Hamlin or Andrew Johnson? It's interesting, even though Obama's White House claims that he didn't consider replacing Biden, some aides have indicated that in 2012, they considered selecting Hillary Clinton as his running mate instead. Hamlin, as, as you're well aware, was replaced at the convention. So I'm just curious if you have any ideas on why Biden might have been on the line back in 2012. And is there anything that we can learn from Hamlin being replaced and any parallels to Joe Biden's narrative? The vice presidency in the 19th century, as you and your listeners know, was a very different office than the one in which Joe Biden entered in 2000 as a candidate and was potentially on the chopping block for replacement four years later. Although I read that too, and I think that the discussions were actually happening in 2011. Um, I think it's important to, as best we can, historicize, first of all, uh, the 19th century vice presidency and then uh, Biden's vice presidency in a sense to try to make that comparison. Biden was in the the grand scheme of things, um, a kind of vice president who fit the main requirement, and that is do no harm. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, in that sense, uh, he reminds me more of Hannibal Hamlin. And so, and in in the sense of you have the comparison to him being potentially replaced in the second uh, run-up, I think there's also that more natural decision. That being said, um, an interesting aspect about both Hamlin and Johnson, which makes for a political point, is that those two vice presidents were both former Democrats Mm -hmm. who joined the Republican Party and who essentially uh, made that decision for calculated political reasons. By comparison, we have Barack Obama and Joe Biden both as Democrats, so part of the same party, and always had been, but more that... um, which wings, we might say, which sort of sides of the Democratic Party are they coming from? And in the sense that Biden was squarely in the center and tried to be considered and considered himself a moderate, um, you might think that he did add that political balance to Mm -hmm. Barack Obama in a way that 19th century vice presidents added more geographic balance. Indeed, as you know, 19th century vice presidents were primarily picked to help win the state from which they they came and thus provide additional electoral support uh, for the the overall ticket. So that's no longer, I think, the case in the 21st century. In other words, Delaware is not an electorally significant state. 
and and his selection was not because he's from Delaware. It's because of the kind of of candidate he was, uh, both in the campaign trail and then I think his political philosophy being conducive to to um, Obama's. In the sense that, did either man have more experience than 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 Hamlin, who I'm going with as the comparison? In other words, did Biden was Biden sort of a similarly experienced as a Hannibal Hamlin and they're actually, I think the comparison begins to founder since Biden was at the time of his selection among the, the longest serving senators in the, the, in, the, in the United States. And Hamlin was about the same age as Lincoln, was a pro- approximately similar experience he had, mm-hmm. state level experience. So Biden was much more of a veteran than either of those of Lincoln's vice presidents. I think the issue, though, about the replacement is fascinating. That came out only from my reading of it in 2013, after the re-election had happened. Sure. And what the reporting suggested to me was um, Barack Obama was at an all-time low in terms of his popularity by polling. He had suffered that defeat in 2010, uh, the loss of the House of Representatives um, to a Tea Party insurgency. And there was a great fear, as tends to be the case among incumbents who are facing issues in their re-election year or the year before, that all options have to be on the table. But it was also described, I read, as a, as a radical move. And I started thinking about also the recent speculation about Donald Trump replacing Mike Pence on the ticket. It seems to me that um, if Donald Trump was able to keep Mike Pence, then... The idea that Barack Obama would replace Joe Biden is even more far-fetched because uh, it, it seems like that was something we might expect from a, from a Trump. But again, as you know, what's interesting is that we're sort of using now a double standard. I mean, 21st century presidents are completely unlikely to replace their running mates. Sure. Um, and the last one to even do so, with Gerald Ford and, and replacing Rockefeller with, with Bob Dole, yeah. I think is almost a, a sort of a special case. Mm-hmm. But... The 19th century is more common, and the fact that Hannibal Hamlin was replaced at the convention speaks not to, I think, the nature of, of um, the Biden-Obama relationship as it does to two major points, one about the nature of campaigning in the 19th century, and secondly, um, about what Lincoln was going through, which is to say fighting a civil war and trying to build a political kind of coalition that... In, in so doing, he actually gave up the Republican Party. And people forget, Lincoln ran in 1864, not technically as a Republican, but under this Union Party amalgamation. Yeah, yeah. And, and bringing Andrew Johnson made sense there. So you know, the comparison's harder because then Joe Biden and Barack Obama aren't making those same moves across political lines. I think I actually see some comparison with, with um, Joe Lieberman possibly mm-hmm. being talked about as a pick for John McCain in 2008. Mm-hmm. And, and, and th- that he didn't do it is interesting in its own right. And it may well speak to this problem of uh, people from a previous party being lumped in. And, you know, you can call Lieberman independent, just like you can call Bernie Sanders an independent. It's just mm-hmm. uh, there's enough baggage associated with it that, again, I think he, he went into a different rabbit hole and pulled out Sarah Palin. So for me, the, le- the lesson here is that it-, it says more about what an unpopular president is desperate enough to do than than about a vice president. And I think the lesson then is about the power of party in the 19th century versus the power of personality and, and the presidency itself in the 21st. 
Yeah, and you raise a really good point there that really the office of the vice president is is totally different uh, today than it than it was at one point. And you know, there's a there's a whole trajectory of of obviously what what brought us to that point, and we're not going to go into that. But one of the things that's really unique about Barack Obama and Joe Biden's relationship is, you know, they didn't start as as the best of friends, but I think by the time they left, at least the public image, and I think there's probably some truth to this, is that, that they were really quite close uh, confidants to each other, um, and, and still are from what I understand. Uh, that's that's really, really different uh, than, than my understanding of what Lincoln's relationship would have been with either of his vice presidents, or really most presidents and vice presidents. With that in mind, I'm just curious, as you think about the possibility that that Barack could have sought to replace Joe Biden, do you feel like the the simpatico, to use a Joe Biden phrase, uh, the simpatico relationship between the two was such that it finally made him decide that this isn't the right decision? a good question in that one likes to sort of give importance to the value of personal relationships in our politics and to suggest that political decisions aren't completely calculated. No, short answer. I I think that, again, it was was actually brought to Obama, I think, as a a kind of, as an idea. Sure. And in retrospect, being described as a radical move may well be sort of a, a kind of sheepish um, realization that Biden brought his own strength and conviction to the office. And I'm, I'm thinking about what happened in the year 2012, not just the campaign itself. And we talk about the BP debate, which I think is significant since it gets to one of the great contributions he made in the 2012 election. And that is to pick up the pieces of Barack Obama's performance in the first debate versus Mitt Romney and to turn it back around for the, the Democratic ticket by really soundly defeating, I think, Paul Ryan in that debate and thus laying the groundwork for Obama to come back in the second debate. But there's another thing about it, and and, and that is the year 2012 was also where Joe Biden showed something of his independence as um, at least a leader in terms of the, the where the Democratic Party is moving. Biden's been criticized for being sort of ju- just right at the moment, right at the center of where, where his party is. Hmm. And yet in this moment in May 2012, incredibly, Vice President Biden expressed support for same-sex marriage without the prior uh, approval or expression of the same from President Obama. And hmm. that caused a kind of moment of tension whereby the, 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 the president felt that, that the vice president had gone ahead of him. And yet, to me, that shows the kind of conviction and leadership that Biden uh, was, was capable of on this particular issue and indeed may well have pushed Obama to declare his support for same-sex marriage and marriage equality earlier. Um, I think that's when things turned. I'm mean, not saying that their friendship sort of developed after that, mm-hmm. uh, but I do think something turned when Obama realized Biden's ability to be in the right place for his party at the right time. Hmm. And so the second term is where we see the what has been described as the bromance yeah, sure. between between Obama and Biden. And that that is, of course, after it's all well and good. They've won their reelection and sure. now they're going through the second term. So 
I think the first term could be described as, um, we can get into the politics certainly of what Biden did during that first term, but I think the first term could be described as feeling out the relationship and finding the dynamic. And I think the year 2012 was a pivotal one for pointing to the long-term sustainability. And I think the second term then shows us that Biden and Obama did indeed have a lot in common and, and, and value the same things. And as their legislative agenda stalled, quite frankly, in the second term, as they faced more congressional opposition and obstruction, what they had left were was sort of classic executive branch behavior, including from a kind of um, policy perspective, executive order, foreign policy, but also the ceremonial aspect and the kind of public presence of it. And, and it took on renewed importance. And so this leads us to Joe Biden being awarded Obama's last Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, an incredible move that has not happened before and, and not in that way by an active president of an active vice president. Um, so so I, I think Obama might have changed more than Biden. That's sort of my read on this is that Joe Biden, he's older, he's more set in his ways, he, he is the person he has been. Sure. I, think he, I think he got Barack Obama essentially to come around to his way of thinking, if not on, a, on the political level, which is debatable policy point by policy point, but just... Um, on the kind of, even on the kind of uh, relationship that he had always wanted. Because again, Biden wanted to be the last man in the room. He wanted not a co-presidency a la Ford Reagan, but he wanted, he wanted something more than had been the case. For him to leave the U.S. Senate as one of the most senior ranking members of the, some of the most powerful committees, mm. he wanted it to be, get the, both the publicity and the spotlight, but also that, that, that contribution that he did in fact make as vice president. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for for your reflections on that, and I appreciate some speculation that you've you've done there with that. I know that can be a challenge to to navigate. One of the challenging parts of Joe Biden's career has been how much uh, personal loss he has experienced. And so despite the death of his first wife and two children, he pressed forward in public life. And then the death of his son, Beau, was a really pivotal moment for him when he was trying to decide what his political future uh, might hold several years ago. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how Joe Biden navigated being in the public eye as he grieved, um, especially with the death of his son, Beau, uh, which would have been during his vice presidency. And can you share with us, you know, maybe what other presidents or vice presidents experienced as they also navigated loss during their time in office? And Biden's personal losses are very much back in the news in the sense that um, I'm thinking about the Democratic National Convention in August, in which I have never seen a more biography-forward campaign than what was on display um, at the Democratic National Convention. And of course, Biden is the oldest man to run for president, so you might say he's got the longest biography behind Sure. Him. What's been interesting is that rather than focusing on Biden's politics and his legislative accomplishments and his positions over the years and achievements, so much of it was about his personal story. And that, that has been the theme, I would say, since at least the Bill Clinton era, in which which national conventions have been really almost a kind of um, cinematic exposure to the kind of feel good stories about a, about a president presidential candidate, beginning with where he's born, the, the boy from Hope, uh, with Clinton, 
and with Biden, he's been saying it, he's been telling his story for so long. It's, the contours were very familiar to me. I had heard it all before, in other words. It's not the first time I had heard Joe Biden's story this past summer, but it really hit home for me, um, given the coronavirus pandemic that we're in, given the loss and suffering that our nation's going through, that there was a, there was a messaging at work in Biden's biography, and grief and tragedy were at the heart of it. So, yeah, I would like to discuss how these personal losses impacted him. And again, this should be now familiar to most to most listeners, given that we have a, the active candidacy of Biden happening now. Sure. He married his first wife, Nelia Hunter, in 1966. They were both very young in their 20s. And by all accounts, it was a very happy, joyous marriage until December 18th, 1972, when she and their daughter, Naomi, who was an infant, were killed in a car crash when they were struck by a truck. Hmm. That, now, that tragedy is the sort of origin story of Biden's tragedy. Now, sons Bo and Hunter live on, and within a few years comes in Jill. And Jill Biden, Jill Biden will be then the sort of a stepmother, but she, she doesn't use that word to describe her relationship to these children. She, uh, and, and she has a new book out I want to quote from later, she talks about becoming sort of healing that family and becoming their mother and stepping in. And, and when they were married in 1977, she is, she is the mother of Joe and uh, rather of Hunter and Bo Biden. And, and then they have their, their third child together, Jill and Joe do, and that's Ashley. <laughs> so Bo Biden, Bo, is the Biden child who recently, yes, did pass away in May 2015. His loss is so searing to both Joe Biden and Jill Biden that it still resonates. Um, as I said, I, I want to read a passage from Jill Biden's new biography to give you a sense of how each of them dealt with grief. The name of the biography is Where the Light Enters, Building a Family, Discovering Myself. And Jill Biden published Jill. I should just start saying Dr. Jill. So Dr. Jill published this published this in 2019, so it was already uh, during what was Joe Biden's third and final try to obtain the nomination mm -hmm. uh, before doing so. And it's a, it's a really fascinating book. I don't think it's been read very much. It hasn't been talked about particularly, but, but Dr. Jill is, she's an educator. She's a, I, I, her style strikes me as sort of uh, pedagogue-in-chief. Uh, she does it with, with uh, conviction and, and true heartfelt sympathy. So when she's talking about Bo's death, she says, hundreds of letters poured into the White House after Bo's death, notes and cards for both Joe and me. Joe found comfort in reading the stories and looking at the photos. This is uh, someone who wrote to Vice President Biden. The only thing we can hope for is that our children make us proud by making a difference in the world. Bo has done that and then some the world noticed. Now Dr. Jill goes on. I was so grateful for the support, but I, on the other hand, couldn't read a single word. It's a subtle difference in the way we handle grief, she writes. Joe loves to remember what Bo meant to people, while I, while I can't face the memories. I keep my letters in a bag in my closet, too precious to get rid of, but unopened all the same. They might stay that way forever. Some things you, I, just can't face. 
And so there's a resilience to Joe Biden that if you were paying attention to how Jill talked about Bo, even in their interviews this year, she's not over it. Sure. Um, and she, she is continues to be just absolutely stricken by Bo Biden's death. Yeah. Joe has has managed to, as he always has when he's faced tragedy, to to move on in a way that makes him stronger and makes his family come together. And um, that is a, an absolute tribute to Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden um, has dealt with tragedy at a level from my own research is unprecedented as vice president, the loss of a son. Well, now, I did, sure. I did dig into this a little bit to try to see where else vice presidential tragedy can be found. And it's interesting because while many vice presidents died in office, which sure. is in itself a tragedy, yeah. it's a tragedy for their families and sure. less so for the vice president who's dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so so we, we could think about some of those vice presidents as a comparison, but I don't think that's really a fair one. Sure. Uh, the the uh, seven vice presidents who died in office, who your listeners may remember, we have George Clinton, who was vice president first under Jefferson, then under Madison. We have Elbridge Jerry, who was under Madison as a replacement for Clinton. He dies. Uh, Madison was unlucky. Yeah, uh, sure. Some, someone I studied quite a bit and wrote my first book about, William Rufus King, sure. under Franklin Pierce. Henry Wilson whose life has been described as Dickensian, mm-hmm. who was uh, Grant's second vice president, dies in office. Mm-hmm. Thomas Hendricks, who dies in office barely a year in under Grover Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And Garrett Hobart, which famously will open the door under McKinley for, for TR in the second term. Mm-hmm. And, and James Sherman, the last vice president to die in office, who died while the running mate of William Howard Taft. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think those are comparables. Um, sure. I, as I thought about it more, I, I don't think we can say that 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 is the same thing as what Joe Biden experienced. Sure. Now, presidents, on the other hand, that is a somewhat more well-known and I think I think more comparable case. Several sure. U.S. presidents lose children mm-hmm. while in office, mm-hmm. starting with John Adams, mm-hmm. um, loss of his son. Uh, also, others who come to mind include, well, loss of son, but also loss of a spouse. That's another one, which sure. we could make that comparison. But just f- focusing on loss of children, uh, we have to go to Franklin Pierce, mm. who, again, um, lost all three of his children during his lifetime, but his third one um, during the year he was, he was um, in, in running for, for president. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Those two come to mind most significantly. Mm-hmm. There are uh, other, you know, I think personal struggles that, that U.S. presidents' children overcome within their lifetime. But in terms sure. of death and that level of tragedy, the only two that came to mind for me were Adams and Pierce on, mm. on that level. Sure. Uh, and, and then on the level of uh, the, the loss of, of spouses, that I think, again, could could resonate. And there are some, of course, presidents who come in as widowers, long-term widowers. Um, this includes people like Thomas Jefferson and Martin Van Buren. And then there's the recent widowers like Andrew Jackson, whose wife, Rachel, dies just months before she would have come in as Jackson's first lady. And then there's those who 
um, have second marriages while in the White House. I can hear Woodrow Wilson. This was a very important one, given his later illness. Sure. That he that he that he dealt with uh, his first wife Ellen dying, and his second wife Edith marrying while in the White House. And there are other presidents who've had uh, who've had the loss of spouses, um, but before their presidency. But that, and and, and by loss, I mean not necessarily a a tragic death. I'm just thinking about the divorce presidents, but I don't think we want to compare that either. So to give the best answer I can would be there's only one other president I know of who's lost a child in office, and that was John Adams. The others either is before, after, and so... That case is what is just so nicely dramatized in the John Adams miniseries of HBO. You know, showed a son who was dissolute, who was um, struggling with alcoholism, and it showed a father who was completely just incapable of accepting the way his son had gone. And um, when John Adams lost his son, Charles Adams, he was 30 years old, and he was all of, I think four months from being out of office. So this is already after his loss to Jefferson. But by that time, he had actually already disowned Charles and assisted him out. Hmm. You know, nothing could be, the, nothing could be further uh, from what we see with the death of Bo Biden, who was not just a son. I mean, he was, he's been described as, uh, I, I don't even, I'm just reaching for the right metaphor. It's not a, not a brother, obviously, but something like, his father's best reflection. Yeah. And I, I think Bo Biden was, was Joe's closest confidant, yeah, even sure. more perhaps than, than Dr. Jill. I mean, sure. the way those two, it was an inseparable bond. Yeah. And, and um, Bo, of course, if you look at him in his prime prior to his illness, he strikes me as presidential timber. Sure. He, he radiated a confidence. He had achieved public office in his lifetime. He had a military pedigree. Um, and, and again, his death, not just the, the tragedy of, of the last 10 years or five years for, for Vice President Biden, it very well pushed, uh, it, it can be attributed to the reason Joe Biden, who was ambitious still in his early 70s in 2016, mm-hmm. decided not to run and challenge Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Bernie Sanders. But it would have been interesting if Biden, Sanders, Clinton, primary it's hard to say who would have won that primary in 2016 but but that but his decision to pull out in that rose garden conference in which he gave and obama gave him the the pat on the back yeah with joe biden he's one of the most political creatures i've ever seen in action and yet when it comes to tragedy when it comes to all the things surrounding his 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 family uh it's the most it's when he's at his most genuine and I think again, from a from a kind of the contemporary moment we're in, we say things like, "This man has suffered so much, mm-hmm. and this man has has weathered tragedy, and this man has is able." They talk about Biden's empathy, his ability to relate to people, sure. which again was on display in the Democratic National Convention and the various stories and, and anecdotes. And in a with a country that seems to be literally having an open wound with our coronavirus pandemic, it seems that his popularity has never been greater. That that it seems like all the tragedy he weathered in his life has led him 
to be at this moment. And again, it's hard not to think that way when you're when you're living through it at, at this point. But uh, I think that I guess my final point is tragedy is not all for the bad. Um, they talk about a silver lining. They talk about what good what what good can come from from the rain uh, from the storm clouds. And new life can spring up. And mm-hmm. um, despite him being the oldest man ever to run for president, it seems like Joe Biden has a has a, a second, third, fourth, fifth. I can't even count. But he's got a new wind and a new bounce sure. in his step. And he's he's fighting not just for the American people, but he's clearly still fighting for the memory of Bill Biden. Yeah. That's that's really heartwarming, and uh, certainly it is quite evident uh, that that Bo uh, has meant a, a great deal to Joe, and Bo's legacy, I think, continues to actually motivate and drive Joe uh, to what he seeks to accomplish. And I think that's uh, that's very very clear in the way that he he leads, and you know, should he have the opportunity to become president, I think he certainly would hold that mantle of consoler in chief um, as a result of, of like you said, uh, all of that that grief and that, that uh, suffering that he experienced, preparing him to be able to help other people, I think, process through that as well. Let's take a quick break. It's time for a vice presidential pop quiz. Although Joe Biden is mostly associated with the state of Delaware, he was born and spent part of his childhood in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So the question is, which other vice president was also born in Pennsylvania? Was it A, George M. Dallas, B, Levi P. Morton, or C, Spiro Agnew? The correct answer is A, George M. Dallas. Who was the vice president to James K. Polk? Dallas was an extremely accomplished politician holding a number of positions ranging from mayor of Philadelphia to senator to ambassador to the United Kingdom, just to name a few posts. So, one of the things that's really, uh, I think, important to look at with Joe Biden's legacy is that he will really go down in history as a quite unique figure. Um, it's hard to say what the future will look like, but as of now, uh, it, he holds a really special place in the sense that he was the vice president to the first black president and was the first mainstream political candidate to pick a black running mate. So one of the parallels between Obama and Lincoln is how much they polarized the country for different reasons, but certainly still polarized in some ways. And yet Biden seems to have had a history of crossing the aisle, uh, sometimes to potentially his own political detriment that people have used against him. Uh, He takes it as a, a badge of honor that he's been able to do such great bipartisan work. So I'm curious if you see any parallels between the Obama-Biden administration as a whole and the early Reconstruction era and the ways in which the Republicans had to navigate politics with Southern Democrats while also advocating for black Republicans uh, to play a critical role in the government. I think we should first reflect on the moment in which Joe Biden became a U.S. Senator which takes us back again to the death of his first wife, Amelia, and the year 1972. He was elected at the age of 29, 
thought he would be turning 30 before what would have been uh, his his uh, swearing in as a U.S. senator, making him the youngest U.S. senator at the time, arguably ever in American history. There have been other 30-year-old senators. Mm-hmm. Um, 1972 Delaware. Uh, it's it's feels like it could be another place in time altogether from our own. It's 48 years ago in a state that not more than five years earlier had been occupied by National Guardsmen for the longest period of time, Wilmington, Delaware was. Mm-hmm. It's a, Delaware is a southern state. It, 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 was, it, did, it did not secede with the Confederacy, but it had slavery until the, uh, the passage of the 13th Amendment. Sure. And so culturally, it's in that middle Atlantic region that can look to the north and the south. Mm. And yet, from the lived experience to be, like Joe, Irish Catholic in Delaware in the 1950s, 60s, and then into his adulthood in the 70s, is to be dealing with the legacy of segregation. So I think it's important to acknowledge that Biden, from a very early age, was crossing those color lines. He was the only white kid who agreed to be a, a lifeguard at a pool during the summer, basically that was for black Mm. children. Um, He's very comfortable around African-American people to the point where he's had some of his worst gaffes, some of his most heartfelt, passionate commentaries on race have sounded awful, where he has taken, it seems to take granted black voters for the Democratic Party, where he sort of uh, questions the very blackness of people who would support, say, his political opponents. That's where he's gone the wrong way. And yet, there's no questioning his authenticity, yep. his embrace of really an integrated society that the one he did not grow up in, in yep. Delaware, but the one he wanted to see. And there's a story, too, about when he decided, when he's making the decision whether or not to accept Barack Obama's proposition or offer to become vice president, his mother, who was still alive at the time, said, but Joe, what about civil rights? As in, is not a consideration for you. You've been fighting your whole life for civil rights. Mm. And that, don't you want to be at the side of the first black president, essentially? Mm. Because Joe Biden had not made, never, he never instantly decides anything. He always consults with his family. And so I actually think Joe Biden, again, had he not been vice president or, or president, maybe, he would go down, arguably, as a great senator because he was on the right side of civil rights. Now, that may, that may seem kind of awkward coming from someone who joined the Senate in 1972, mm-hmm. but it's absolutely was still the sort of a key issue of our times. And here again, I, I was reading up in Biden in preparation for the podcast, and I picked up his then-2008 campaign biography, Joe Biden's Promises to Keep. Mm-hmm. And it just goes into such incredible detail about his career, and it, it, it will go down, I think, as a book that will be read, consulted later on, depending what happens, but in his final chapter, the chapter is sort of a classic uh, why I'm running for president, even though you don't say it. Mm-hmm. It's called Promises to Keep, the name of the chapter, and thus the name of the, the book. And he, he relates a story about um, his time entering the Senate in 1972 and how he met um, one of the, at that time, very senior, but would become even more senior, uh, Mississippi Democratic Senator John Stennis who was, is, is the last Democrat to represent Mississippi in the Senate. Stennis, mm-hmm. who began his career in the 1940s, uh, was planning to retire in the late 1980s. Then Biden, who had been in the Senate for about 16 years, was, in, was 
getting his own seniority. In fact, in the Russell building, he talked about wanting to claim Stennis's very nice office, which is you know, <laughs> classic horse trading. Yeah. And this is what Stennis said, and Biden recalls for us. He said, Joe, remember the first time you came to see me? Joe Biden shook his head. I didn't remember. So Senator Stennis recalled from the story of a 30-year-old senator-elect from Delaware coming to his office to pay respects in 1972. Stennis sort of chuckled when he reminded me that when he asked why I'd run for Senate, I seemed to have forgotten his long record as a segregation and burst it, blurted out, civil rights, sir. And Biden says, I was a pretty smart young fellow then, wasn't I, Mr. Chairman? And Stennis gets serious and he says, Joe, I wanted to tell you something then that I'm going to tell you now. And he says, you see this table, Joe, and he's sitting in his office, this beautiful mahogany table. He says, Stennis, this table was the flagship of the Confederacy from 1954 to 1968. We sat here, most of us from the Deep South, the old Confederacy. We planned the demise of the Civil Rights Movement, and we lost. And Joe, now it's time for this table go from the possession of a man who was against civil rights to a man who was for civil rights. Mm-hmm. And Joe, one more thing. The civil rights movement did more to free the white man than the black man. It freed my soul. It freed my soul. Wow. Uh, this is from Biden's memoir. It's a private conversation with Senator Stennis, but sure. uh, no reason to, to doubt any aspect of it. And indeed, it fits within Biden's not just crossing, I would say, partisan lines, which again, Stennis was a Democrat, but yeah. you know, a Southern Democrat, but, but crossing the lines of culture, sure. and particularly on race. And Biden's selection as the first, uh, as the as a running mate to the first black president, to me, then does draw similar parallels to the first governments, the first national governments following the Civil War, following the election of President Grant in, in 1868, in which we began to see the Republican Congress start to deal with the issues of Reconstruction. And I think the question, though, does does deserve a point in that the Republicans controlled the U.S. House and U.S. Senate absolutely unopposed for the entire Civil War, sure. really, um, except, I mean, there were some, some setbacks in the House in the 1862 election, but, but because of the lack of Southern Democrats, Sure. Who had seceded. And in the Reconstruction period, to, to the point of the question, um, the Southern states were readmitted in a period of five years from Tennessee in 1866 down to Georgia in 1870. Mm-hmm. So while the most significant Reconstruction policy was being enacted, and while the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were being run through the, the, the Congress, the Republican Party more or less controlled the terms of the debate. Sure. And so this idea that somehow, you know, what Biden was doing in terms of crossing the aisle is a way what, what Republicans had to do in terms of their Southern Democratic colleagues and restrictions actually less, less clear of an analogy for me because the Republicans had pure raw power. They had the numbers and they didn't have to compromise. And, and, and for this reason, they're still known as the radical Republicans because of what they were able to do in terms of moving the conversation on race. And in that regard, you might say, the last, you know, there's epochs for civil rights. Again, Joe Biden runs for Senate in 1972 to, for civil rights. I mean, yes, maybe he was seven years too late in terms of some of the legislative efforts, but in terms of what needed to happen in American society, he was right on the money. The idea that the election of Barack Obama and thus Biden as a running mate in 2008 solved the problem of race 
may well go down as one of these sort of tragic misunderstandings the American people had. That somehow we've elected a black president and therefore all of the problems that once plagued us in race just go away. Nothing can be further from the truth. And I I know that the symbolic meaning of Obama's uh, election will never go away. I also know that if Joe Biden is going to be elected, it has to be because of that relationship to Barack Obama, because of that historic first. And yes, his picking of a black woman, Kamala Harris, as a running mate is absolutely in keeping and in parallel with that coalition of that, that, that alliance between a white politician and black politician of the, the sort of different um, uh, wings of the Democratic Party coming together of um, and finally now gender difference, finally having a woman on, on, on a ticket um, with Biden. Of course, let's not discount Hillary Clinton's historic presidential run. I'm not trying to say that either. I'm saying you know, Biden chose not just a woman, but a black woman. And it, it has to be said that, again, this is historic still. He's making history in his selection of a running mate. Biden has described himself as a transitional candidate. Sure. And a lot of a lot of sort of flipping comments on the right say things like a transition to what socialism, and it's it's a cheap shot at what really could I think be understood in a, in a much more historical light that he truly is a different generation, and he understands that, and his entire political career has been about sort of moving with the times, yeah. and even his first Senate race in which he won, he had to unseat an popular popular Democratic. Uh, a rather Republican uh, opponent, and he did by by you know a, a small margin. So Biden is is I described him once as the Ronald Reagan of the 2020s. I, I think he he brings that same appeal that Reagan brought to a, a, a wide swath of the electorate, but he did he's doing it sort of through traditional means of elective office and traditional sort of. Um, a traditional run, you might say, at a lifetime in politics. So there, there's there's parallels to, to 2008. There's, there are some parallels, I think, to the Reconstruction era. Hmm. I think um, he's lived such a long life. He's been through so much. He's, he's seen so much that you could probably find some resonances from across the entire 20th century in, in Joe Biden's career. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great point that Joe Biden has really seen uh, so much and and experienced so many different facets of the American experience. It's also worth noting that I I believe he if he were to be elected, he would be the first president and probably the last president from the silent generation. Um, And so that certainly is a fascinating thing to think about, that really a whole generation potentially could have been skipped. Um, But he really spans that that spectrum of things that have happened uh, from the American experience in the last uh, several decades. So finally, uh, this is is not part of his vice presidency, but it's been fascinating to see how much Biden's pandemic kind of basement campaign has been likened to the front porch campaigns of the 19th century. Now, Biden's preferred campaigning strategy is more similar to his preferred mode of transportation, the train, Amtrak specifically. Uh, Now, with that said, I have seen that he has started his own version of a whistle-stop tour recently here, uh, traveling via 
uh, train, uh, at least through Ohio and then into Pennsylvania, I saw here last week. Um, so obviously he is more of a whistle-stop candidate, but he essentially has been trying to run a front porch campaign. I just wonder if you have any reflections on how these two different campaigning styles have impacted presidential elections in the past and what that could mean for Joe Biden now. I think it's an interesting concept, Micah, that you raised, that, that, that the whistle-stop style candidate in, in Joe Biden is running a front porch campaign. I, I agree that his early efforts stood for the front porch, were, were, were more of a front porch effort. And um, looking back on some of the famed front porch campaigns from the 19th century into the 20th, we can bring to mind James Garfield, but definitely Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, and I think overlooked Woodrow Wilson as well in his uh, re-election. And yet there's also other kind of campaign styles that we might think about here to try to, under, try to unpack this concept of a whistle-stop candidate. I mean, mm-hmm. my mind went back to 1948 when Harry Truman ran for a term in his own right through what is, I think, still unsurpassed the classic whistle-stop campaign. Um, I think whistle-stop campaigns may begin with in terms of using the train to get around the country quickly, might go back to Andrew Johnson, who, who was not really running for elective office as much as president, his disastrous swing around the circle, um, where he attempted to build support for his legislative agenda really to stop the, the radical reconstruction efforts. So there's that. Sure. But historians like to talk about different campaign styles. And in the 19th century, the classic campaign style was the so-called army campaign where patronage was the chief uh, sort of concept. And, and, and then we moved on to the leaflets and the, and the campaigns of information. But front porch campaigns worked well within the army campaign concept. In other words, they're complementary. Yeah. And you would have Republicans, or mostly Republicans actually, in the Midwest turning out to, to march in uh, these sort of torchlight parades sort of things and, um, you know, big shows of strength, which um, candidates then didn't have to do for themselves. They didn't need to gather the faithful, as we see in our rallies today, because the faithful would demonstrate in the camp and the candidate could sort of take the, the, the high ground. And the kind of rally campaigns that, we, that, that um, we see in the 20th century are sort of the evolution, I think, of um, the whistle stop. So I, I actually think you're onto something by saying that whistle stop campaigning picks up around rallying, mm-hmm. where now it's not about demonstrating sort of a public parade for the candidate, it's about sort of seeing the candidate and assembling in mass to hear and see him. Mm-hmm. Which again, the technology has to be there. There has to be, for example, amplified sound it makes a big difference in allowing candidates to do that. And then we think about well, when does the whistle stop kind of go out of style? And there, I would say, once planes become once airplanes become ubiquitous enough, safe enough, and easy enough, the candidates can now zip around on a plane. We don't need to see campaigning by train anymore. Mm-hmm. And and so, who was the last presidential candidate to really whistle stop? Um, actually, I'm not really sure. I have a good answer for that. I I want to say Truman, but um, you know, I think it's debatable. So later ones get the mantra, but. Sure. I sort of, I guess what I'm saying is I don't really agree 
that Biden is conducting with the stop campaign. In other words, he's using the train as a kind of element in his arsenal, a tool in the toolbox. He used the front porch. He's whistle stopping now. And he's given, and, and, and he's recently just given a, a major speak a speech at Gettysburg at the National um, Historical Battlefield. I think Biden is uh, like the every man, uh, the sort of Forrest Gump of U.S. politics. He is he is ready, willing, and able to pull out every single trick in the bag. And I, I think that's how I would read him. I, I don't. I, I know the man loved his Amtrak, and I know he. <laughs> He thrived off that, but sure. uh, but is he conducting a whistle stop campaign today? Not so much. Yeah. I, I think I think what will be interesting then is how the campaign plays out in the remaining days and weeks. I think um, television continues to play an important role in how he reaches the American people. Sure. Uh, his his Twitter feed is active as well as are other social media. Uh, his debate performances are critical as well. There's still that element. Uh, we presume in this age of coronavirus, um, but he will not be holding the kinds of mass campaigns that Donald Trump does because it gets into his campaign messaging, which is to say that he sort of supports science and he supports the kind of public health measures that are being put forth by experts sure. so that would Joe Biden have run a mass rally campaign to try to compete with Donald Trump had we not been in a pandemic? Now, that's an interesting mm-hmm. question. And it's a hypothetical that we don't really have an answer to. We might look back to his two times running with Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 and his, his efforts there. But even in his primary efforts in 2019-20, yeah. he was not one to do the match rallies. And sure. he only got a few primaries before he really could, uh, before he was cut off, but, but also won by, by Super Tuesday. So I, I, I guess I guess he's uh, he's a he's a John Everyman. He's tried it all. He'll do whatever it takes to win. And um, right now he is in the Midwest, where, where there still is um, almost nostalgia for a whistle stop stop tour. So I'm not surprised he's he's uh, decided to to do that, and it puts him in a kind of uh, rosy glow, uh, sort of old fashioned in a good way right now, and um, also again promotes all sorts of images for someone who had supported public transit and um, some of the things of his, maybe some of his policy around uh, climate change as well. Mm. So um, it's on brand for Joe Biden is how how I would describe it. Yeah. So if, if there is any tinge of real whistle stop campaigning, it's really just kind of a novelty uh, to uh, kind of, be amused by the uh, the nostalgic nature of, of times past, if you will. I think that's a nice summation of it, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, this has been great uh, chatting with you, Tom. It, it's interesting that you referred to Joe Biden as the Forrest Gump of, of, of this realm. You know, it's funny, I've been actually working on the Dick Cheney uh, episode of, of the podcast and actually the image of Dick Cheney being the Forrest Gump of the Republican Party um, keeps coming to mind. And actually, it's really fascinating when you stop and think about the vice presidency of Dick Cheney and the vice presidency of Joe Biden. While they are very different people, very different personalities, different mm-hmm. skill sets, it is remarkable how similar uh, both of their stories are. Um, and and really how 
both of them had very unique vice presidencies that are fairly atypical for most other vice presidents uh, in the sense that they they had an immense amount of power um, in comparison. Uh, but just fascinating to hear you use that, that same metaphor for Joe Biden. And I think that kind of uh, reaffirms some of my thinking that I've had about uh, the similarity between the two in that regard.